Welcome, dear listeners, to another fascinating episode of the London History Podcast, where we delve into the vibrant and diverse past of this great city. I am your host, Hazel Baker, a qualified London tour guide and founder of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Whether you're a born and bred Londoner or a curious listener, join us on a journey through time as we explore the city together. Each episode is supported by show notes, transcripts, photos and further reading, all to be found on our website. If you enjoy what we do, then you'll love our guided walks and private tours that we offer throughout the year, all bookable online at londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Subscribe now to never miss an episode. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and rating to help spread the word to other history lovers. Today, we are delighted to welcome back Anna Borzello, an experienced mudlarker whose fascinating discoveries along the banks of the Thames have unearthed a treasure trove of artefacts and should be sharing some from the Stuart period. Anna's particular work provides us with a glimpse into the daily lives and material culture of 17th century London, and that offers us a direct and personal connection to the path which is both rare and invaluable. The Stuart period was a time of significant social, political and cultural transformation, a captivating backdrop for Anna's findings today. These objects, ranging from personal belongings to remnants of trade and domestic life, not only illustrate the economic and social dynamics of the era, but also reveal the personal narratives and experiences of the people who once owned them. Each artefact, with its own unique history, provides a tangible link to those individuals living through such tumultuous times. This is the Stuart monarchy, so the English Civil War, the plague and the Great Fire of London. These finds allow us to piece together everyday experiences from 17th century Londoners, offering insights into their habits, preferences and the challenges they faced. And once you've listened to this and you haven't listened to Anna's previous episode, then get on to episode 112, Mudlarking Finds, Georgian London. So welcome, Anna. Hello. Thank you so much for asking me back. I'm really excited because when you ask me back, it means I can revisit my finds and re-research them, which was very invigorating. Excellent. And it might be worth just introducing people to the world of mudlarking and the requirement for permits. Ah, yes, it's very important. So mudlarking, in the Victorian era, mudlarks were scavengers of the foreshore. They were just looking for little lumps of coal or bits of rope that they could sell to survive. They were on the verges of the kind of criminal underclass. (laughs) These days, mudlarks go down to the River Thames when the tide is out and we scavenge not for items to sell. In fact, it's illegal to sell the items we find, but for items that tell us stories about London's history. And that's because the Thames is at the heart of London. If it wasn't for the Thames, there would be no London. The Romans wouldn't have settled here. And over the last 2,000 years, everybody's dumped their rubbish in there. And what's rubbish to other people has treasured to us. And actually, occasionally they drop in the odd wanted treasure item too. And if you're lucky enough, 
you might find that. So the tide goes in and out twice a day and mudlarks time their lives, basically. Someone like me literally times my day around when I can go down to the foreshore at low tide and hunt around in the mud and see what I can find. And not anybody can do it, can they? Anyone can do it in the sense that it doesn't require a specialist skill, really, and you learn on the job. But actually, you do need a permit to uh, to search on the Thames. And about a year and a half ago, the Port of London Authority, who issued those permits, suspended them. So at the moment, only those people who have permits can search the foreshore. Well, I think the PLA is reviewing the situation because there was a great uptake in the number of people mudlocking, particularly over lockdown. So I think they're just seeing how to best manage the numbers and then we'll see what happens next. So at the moment, you can only mudlark if you have a license, although you can go down if you join groups. They're groups like the Thames Discovery Programme and the Thames Explorer Trust run really excellent excursions down to the foreshore. They're affordable and they're interesting. So I would recommend that to anybody who wants to uh, try their hand at mudlarking and see what it's like. Now, you mentioned about learning on the job, Anna, and you've gotten your nine years in. And today we're going to be focusing on finds that you have found that were made or used in the 17th century, which is a big century in London historic terms. Yeah, it's really exciting century. So much goes on in this century. It's crazy. Not only does the population double, there's a growth of the middle class, but right at the heart of the century, you've got the Great Fire of London. London falls down, then it's rebuilt again. It rises from the ashes. There's the plague years. There's the fighting between the Protestants and the Catholics, which continues. The tensions continue. There's the kind of great attempt at building a republic Mm -hmm. right in the middle of the century as well. And then also there's wonderful, magical things like the Great Frost Fair of uh, 1683 to 4, when the Thames froze over in the Little Ice Age, and basically the whole of London decamped to the ice. They had affairs on the ice. It was even meant to be an elephant on the ice. And a lot of these events have left their mark on the Thames and on the object that we find, if we're lucky enough, when we're mudlarking on the Thames. Fantastic. So I think it's worth starting with our first find of the day. And what have you got for us? Okay, so the first find of the day is something that maybe helps us imagine the mental life of people in the 17th century, which was a time when there were a lot of witches, witch hunts, superstitions. So I'm holding a little bit of pottery, and it's stoneware, and it's brown, and it was made in Germany, and it's something that all mudlarks hope to find, and often do find, because they're not uncommon. And it's a little face. I'm going to hold it up so you can see, Hazel, but I'll describe it for anyone who has to listen. It's the neck of a a jar, and it's got a face imprinted on it. It's rather a grumpy-looking man with a downturned mouth. He has a bushy beard, thin nose, and eyes. Actually, his eyes, he's got double eyes on top of each other, and I really liked that when I found it, because when I was a child, I had a double vision but it was a vertical double vision so when I pulled this out of the mud I thought oh my gosh I found something from 400 years ago made by a potter who maybe had the same eye condition that I had as a child or maybe his mould slipped I don't know so these are called Bartman jugs bearded man jugs they were made in Rhineland Germany and they began being imported into England actually in the Tudor period but they were everywhere all throughout the 17th century, and they were multi-purpose. They've got this kind of slender neck that billows out into this massive fat belly, which sometimes has a, a coat of arms on it. And they were used 
because they're stoneware, they're not porous, so they were used for carrying water and wine. You might fetch wine from the tavern or ale from the tavern in it, and you often find them smashed on the Thames because they were commonplace. They were not just known as Bartman or bearded man jugs, they were also known as Bellamine that's that's the word i know (laughs) yeah is it okay so that's after apparently roberto bellamine who was a catholic cardinal he became a cardinal i think in about 1599 he's italian and apparently he was known these were known in england as bellamine jugs to mock him now i don't know where exactly the mockery lies i had a look at a picture of him to see if he was maybe extraordinarily fat because these do have big fat bellies and he wasn't but he was bearded so maybe it was just because he looked like that he was anti-protestant so maybe that's why people wanted to mock him and it it said that he was particularly anti-drinking so they could have been some sort of finger up to him by putting your ale or wine in here. I don't know if that's just a folk tale or if it's true, but it's along those lines that the people of the 17th century decided to call these Bellamine jugs. So it's a little bit of entry into their humour, which I quite like. It makes people come alive when you can connect to their humour. There's something else about these jugs which is interesting. Oh, God, and that's probably going to be my question anyway, so go for yes. it. <laughs> Do you want to ask what it is? I was going to say, now, what's the connection between uh, the Bellamine jugs and the name Witch Bottles? Oh, exactly. That is exactly what I was going to say. So these are often used as witches' bottles. So what they are, you find them mainly not on the river. You'll find them in houses, buried near doors or near fireplaces. That's because that's where bad spirits can enter through those openings. And they're complete. And inside them is commonly found something sharp like pins or nails and something that belongs to a particular person, like their nail clippings or hair clippings. And often then it was soaked in urine and then sealed up with cork or wax and then it was buried. And the idea was it was a protective talisman, really, that if someone was going to send a spell your way, that the spell would get a bit confused because there's a bit of you in the bottle, essentially, and it would go towards the bottle and then get trapped on the pin or the needle, kind of poked and secured there. So it was just people had that in their house to protect themselves. Now, I have only heard ever of one being found in the Thames, a witch's bottle, complete, with those items inside, and that was in the 1950s. I don't know if any have been found subsequently. I think that's because the ones that we find in the Thames are probably rubbish, that was dumped from people's everyday use of these items and then they got rid of them, and that's the reason why. But they did have this wonderful double life. So these bottles, these ordinary bottles, they were sources of humour and they were sources of protection as well as having an extremely practical use. So I really love them. And that sort of furniture of everyday 17th century life I'm holding in my hand now, that's why I love them. Fantastic. And do we know why he's got double eyes? No, I answered, there was, unfortunately, it's very recently closed a Bellamine Museum, and I did ask the gentleman who runs it. He hadn't seen one, actually, with double eyes. I've subsequently seen someone on Instagram who has found one, which makes me wonder if it was deliberate rather than a slip. Mm. What's incredible about this, like people, you know how sometimes you think, isn't it amazing that we're all basically the same, and yet we all look different? How did anyone manage? It's just incredible, and it's the same with these faces. Mm. They've got the same basic features, and yet everybody is, every single one is slightly different. Yeah. Grumpy or happy or cheeky or stupid, or in this case, 
double-eyed. I like to think, as I said, that it was intentional and he had maybe poor eyesight as opposed to it being a slip of the mould. And I suppose one thing against it being a slip of the mould is that it's only the eyes that are affected mm. and the rest of the face. Interesting, isn't it? Maybe that could have been a potential maker's mark or something. That was their thing, the double eyes. Yeah, that's very true. Fantastic. So I'm glad that you showed that one because it, it does show that human connection, isn't it? It makes sense that the witch's bottles, the bellamine jugs that are there to protect a house are on, on land. It's very similar to what they were still doing at that time of um, putting faces outside the windows and the architecture. And you can still see some of those in Buckingham Street or maybe Great Queen's Gate. So the spirits who would could potentially enter the, the window would see these scary faces on the outside, very similar to gargoyles, but on a domestic house and decide not, not to bother going in. I mean, if you think we've got dream catchers now, haven't we? We used to put cats in between the walls to protect the house. Bodies of cats, not necessarily dead when they went in. <clears throat> and also children's shoes above the, the stairwell. So the fairies would take the children's shoes rather than going up the stairs to take the children. So that whole idea of fairies and changeling children and all the rest of it was very much real for them in their lives. I'm going to tell you something that's not relevant to London history, but is relevant to this, which is when I was working in Uganda, I went to this extraordinary conference once in northern Uganda. There was a war at the time, and it was a conference of priests and nuns, and they were being taught by witch doctors their tricks so that they could see through them. So these were people who converted to Christianity and then revealed all their tricks. And the whole thing was absolutely brilliant. But one of them confessed, and he confessed that he had, on occasion, murdered children and buried their bodies under the front of the doorway as a protection. Mm -hmm. What I found most extraordinary about this was somehow in the act of confessing, he was then protected from any form of prosecution, somehow by being a Christian that wiped away that sin. But I, I suppose the reason that's an extreme example, but I did often find it helpful. A lot of my friends in Uganda were using some form of traditional medicine mm -hmm. or different sorts of spirituality to make sense of their life. Yeah. And I find that experience today very helpful in connecting with the past as well, that these things still happen in other parts of the world. People still think this way. Just because we think a different way doesn't mean that everybody does. No, no, exactly. Still, when during the plague years, like you mentioned, uh, people would pay abothegris for spells. And you'd have a little piece of paper with like abracadabra written on it and a, a triangle and roll that up, seal that and have that round your neck and have that carry that with you as a, you know, a talisman to protect you but against the plague and all those side of things. It was all very real then and it's still very real for some people now. I wish you hadn't mentioned that spell around someone's neck because now I'm just going to be desperate to find something like that. And that would be a dream mudlarking find, a piece of paper like that. Hidden that really is a dream mudlarking find something like that yeah so i'm gonna search for it from now on well, there you go you're gonna have to keep your eyes open for a little bottle if you did find something like that you know and the the obvious answer to this question is how would you know what's inside but would you really would you open it or would you ask someone else to do it like Museum of London or something, there might not be anything in, but if it's all properly sealed with wax and everything, then isn't that just, um, you've got to know what's inside, haven't you? 
I don't, people are always opening things that they find on the Thames and you get modern offerings all the times as well and modern spells all the time as well. And I've ripped it in a plastic bag and all sorts of weird things have come out of it, little coins and beans and things like that. I think if I found something that beautifully sealed though with wax, I definitely would ask the Museum of London for help. I think that everyone would be aware that there's some items that you know, it'd be better to get expert help, otherwise you're going to just ruin them. At the moment, what we have to do as mudlucks is we have to report items that are over 300 years old or a treasure and take them to the Museum of London and make sure that they're recorded if they're important. So I think something like that would be off straight away. But it would be tempting to know what's inside. Oh, that was a great introduction to that one, Anna. So what else have you got for us? So this is a different sort of find. It's also pottery. So I re- they're really great on pottery in the 17th century. So in the Tudor times, I've got Tudor pottery, and it's a little bit, I hate to say, it's a little bit samey. <laughs> There's a lot of red and green and browns. And it's quite sort of utilitarian. It's not particularly decorated. So it's nice to find it and it's exciting, but it's not as magically colourful or interesting, I find, as the pottery in the 17th century. So I'm holding here one of my favourite finds. In fact, this sort of find is so beloved for me that I actually sometimes buy tiles like this whole from auctions and things like that because I really love them. So this is a section of a Delft tile from around 1640. And on this section, so it's about half a centimetre thick, a grey biscuity base. And then on top, there's a, a white glaze. It's, it's quite thick, really, and it's got a sort of blue tone to it. And then there's a little man on it. The man is sitting under a bent tree. He's leaning forward with his arms outstretched. It's a perfect little picture. And it's it's slightly rushed off like it's a cartoon, which I really love about this style. It's got such an energy to it. Now, the amazing thing about these tiles is that through the magic of Instagram, I connected with a a proper collector of these in Holland. And I can send him these little pictures, little snippets, and he tells me what the whole was. No. these Delft tiles, were, they were very common to have biblical themes on them. So this, I've got to remember, I think it's Elijah being fed by the ravens. I think I've got to check that I've got the right. I wrote it down, actually, because I, is it Elijah? I think somebody will definitely correct me if I've got that wrong. But he's being fed by the ravens in the desert anyway. And I just find that amazing. I've got other little fragments I often find feathers, and there's actually a man who's on a horse with a feathered cap. The first time I showed like a little feather, he went, yes, it's a man on a horse with a feathered cap. Little feet, he seems to know what they are. I've got this wonderful little slightly later one, which is a collection, it's manganese, so it's purple. Little collection of feet in the corner of a tile, and he managed to tell me what that was as well. It's rather brilliant. These are beautiful tiles. They appear in London in the 17th century, and they originally come from Delft in the Netherlands which is why they're called Delft tiles. You also get wonderful ones like this, which is was imported from Holland. Can you see how beautiful that is? It's Ooh. called polychrome Delft, and it's like a riot of beautiful colours. It would have been a small floral. Isn't it amazing? Again, that would have been on somebody's wall. Mm-hmm. It could have been in a fireplace. It could have been in a kitchen. Some of them are floor tiles. So you can see that suddenly in this world, if you could afford it, you were having all these beautiful tiles and colour in your life 
And also, just to mention quickly, the Dutch ones, they really go for little cartoons of everyday life. Mm-hmm. So there's, I've even seen one, I've got one here, which is a whole one, It's which I bought, which is a man holding a child. But I've also got sad little cat. And then you get this, someone showed me one recently of someone defecating on the ground. And then there's children playing and there's lovers walking along. So they're this incredible snapshot of life in this period in Europe. So that's why everybody loves them. If you'd said, uh, when you showed me that tile and said, what what do you think it would have been? Delfware wouldn't have come as one of my options because it's multicoloured. Oh, yeah, yeah. I always have blue, blue and white in my head for Delfware. So that is, that's amazing to think we've got the multicoloured tile in the home as well for Delfware. Yeah, it's called polychrome Delft, actually, because it's multicoloured. But it's basically the same as Delft. It's a tin glaze. That's what this colour. Now, there is something about these, something wonderful about these tiles, which I had never thought about. Apparently, from the late medieval period in Europe, people became obsessed with Chinese and Japanese porcelain. They saw it for the first time and they just thought, oh my gosh, I've just mentioned that Tudor stuff is lovely, but it's not the most refined of pottery. And suddenly you're seeing this beautiful, nearly translucent pottery with these beautiful blue and white designs. It's like magic and it's white. This purity of white, how do they get this? In fact, the quest for getting it settled in people's head and it was basically considered white gold, sort of alchemy. It's like alchemy. How do you make white gold? Now, the amazing thing is that tin glaze, which is what Delft did, is that icing-like covering on top of the biscuit base, is the closest anyone had got up to that point of creating white, which is why it became so popular, because you could then afford it. If you were in the middling classes, you had an approximation of white. And if you had white with cobalt blue, which, as you've pointed out, most of them are white and blue, you've got an approximation of that Chinese feel and that Chinese style. So it's one reason why it just seized everybody's imagination. So very quickly, in London, you have potteries springing up along the Thames. There are very many of them, actually. And at the beginning, they have there's a very distinctive London Delft, and they're quite high-end and colourful and beautiful. As the century goes on and into the next century, they become much more utilitarian and they're just ordinary little pots and they, you look at the material, it's very kind of yellowy, biscuity, and the glaze seems to be chipping off quickly and it's not so high-end. And I think what happens in the 18th century is, in, I think it's in Germany, at the very beginning of the 1700s, somebody works out how to make really nice porcelain-style china And then that begins to take precedence. And then at the end of the 1700s, you have the invention of bone china. And that's basically Delft's death knell, because now you've got got white. You don't don't need Delft anymore. You've got this much better uh, pottery available. And then you have the whole transworld where in Victorian times. And what I find amazing about this is that nowadays, so before white was the dream, this dream from China and Japan, the quest for white, the chasing after white gold, And now it's like the lowest common denominator of plate. You go into Ikea, if you just shorten imagination, you'll get a white plate. And actually, if you're on the foreshore by a pub, sometimes you get a whole white plate smashed on the ground because they really don't mean anything at all. Mm. I I find that really interesting that it had so much value, this and rarity, and then it becomes available to everybody and eventually it loses its charm. It makes you really hammers home 
how value isn't inherent in a thing often. It's just associated with rarity and how easy it is to get hold of it and how quickly people get bored of things when they're readily available. In terms of the designs on those tiles that you were mentioning about a man holding a child, etc., they're very domestic, aren't they? So are these for homes that are not to be seen by anybody that needs to be impressed? That's a very, that's a very good question. First of all, I don't know... I always get the impression that, the, that those domestic scenes are, are from Holland. I don't know if those domestic scenes are made in England, actually. I just, I get the impression that they're not. That is a really good question, and I don't know the answer to it. And I am now going to try and find out that answer, because it, it makes, yes, it's a really interesting question. I'm, I'm more like to think of people thinking I'm going to get a picture of a guy squatting down doing a poo and put him in my house. That's funny. I that bemuses me, but you're absolutely right. Would if would the visiting alderman have thought it was funny? Maybe not. Yeah, very that was a very good question. Thank you very much. I'm full of them, I'm sure. <laughs> Just give me a time. <laughs> that's your job. <laughs> so what <laughs> that's fantastic. So what item, third item have we got on the list that you want to share, Anna? Okay, so this is something very specific to a time and a place. These are coins. Now, I'm not one of those people who really loves coins. There are people who go out and all they want is coins. They absolutely love them. Often I think the coins are amazing when you find them, but they're a little bit samey. But these are really special. These are, I found my first one right after Brexit, and I was a bit perplexed. didn't have a king's head on it. On one side there was a shield, and on the other side there were two interlocking shields. And I just couldn't make sense of it. And so I went and asked someone. And it turns out that these were issued in a very short period of England's history. And they are Commonwealth coins. So the king has been beheaded and the coins remove his head as well. So for the first time, our coinage doesn't have the king or queen's head on it. Instead, there's a shield that represents St. George. It represents England. And it's got a laurel and a palm on it, which represent Parliament's victory. And on the other side, I think it's England and Ireland on the shields, co-joined. So on some of the bigger coins, there's actually writing as well, which just like King's head's not on it, there's also this writing is no longer in Latin, it's in English, a bit of the Puritan ethos. You want to be able to access things. You don't need the obscurity of Latin to get there. And they say the Commonwealth of England on one side, and on the other side it says... God with us. So wits at the time would say the Commonwealth is on the other side to God, like they're opposing. I think that was quite funny. And also there were a lot of jokes about how the two crossed over shields looked like a little bit like a bum, like a rump, like the rump. Bum bum jokes going on there as well. But I just find it absolutely fascinating, partly because there's not much trace really of the Commonwealth it was such a short period. You don't find much trace on the foreshore. Maybe musket balls further, very much further upstream. But generally, the battles weren't fought on the Thames. So there's not much direct evidence. This is one of the few things that we have. And mm. I believe that when Cromwell formed the Protectorate, he was put on some coins as an attempt to hark back to the notion of the old ways to give him power because he was losing power. But I've never found one of those. It's just these Commonwealth coins. And they just reflect just such a 
intriguing bit of English history. The one that I've got two, as I said, one of them is pierced. I don't know why that is. So it could be, and there's a number of reasons. Apparently, sometimes people pierced coins so that they could string them if they had a few and they could hide them in their clothes because it was easy to carry. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you might lose them. It's much more likely that this was possibly strung by someone who wanted to wear it to show their support, but much more likely it was pierced to destroy it when Charles II became king because they removed about two-thirds of these coins from circulation. And I think it was only the very low-denomination coins, like the ones I found, that sort of remained knocking about. But they might still have been pierced, even though they weren't removed, to show that they were just no... They had no, no merit, no worth. And also, it could be an expression of anger. Someone might have thought, oh, God, that was a pretty grim 11 years. I'm going to stab that coin. But anyway, I, for, the, for those reasons, I find it fascinating. The other thing is just personal. I'm not a... I, when Brexit happened, I was rather glum. Yep. I'm not a supporter of... I wasn't a supporter of the Leave campaign. And I was feeling glum when I picked this up. And I just thought, oh, there we go. Look, there's this huge experiment, political experiment, 300 and nearly 400 years ago. And life goes on and everything changes just because Brexit happened doesn't mean it'll always stay this way. Maybe it'll roll on and change again. It suddenly gave me a longer view when you realise that something dramatic happened in the past and yet time moved on and events changed. So it gave me some solace for some reason finding this coin. Mm. And just to fill listeners in as well, if you're not too sure about the rump parliament and that, but basically when 1649, Charles I is beheaded in January and the parliamentarians are now ruling. So you've got not so King Oliver Cromwell, our great Lord Protector. And during this time, it had all been a a political farce, really, in order to to gain control by the parliamentarians. And when we're talking about the rump, uh, this was uh, something that you also saw on the streets. So the rump parliament, and we had also butchers shops and people burning uh, rumps on the street corners around London. And that is uh, wonderfully depicted in uh, a picture called burning the rumps at Temple Bar by uh, William Hogarth and um, it's a row of London butcher shops uh, and uh, they were all on fire but this political body that was replaced much of the previous the old government during the English Civil War and uh, this protesting historical event was in 1659 and they just burnt these um, beef rumps just on the street there was like political effigies and so when Anne is mentioning about the two shields looking like little buttocks as well this is all relating into that so I'll try and find a, an image of the, the Hogarth one for you to have a look at if you wanted to access that in the show notes as well thank you for that I, I, the, what I have I say that I've learned about bits of London's history through these finds and it's true that I have learned about bits of London history, but often it's just a little door you've punched through to see a very partial view. And I'm putting together a patchwork, but they're huge gaps. So thank you for filling in a bit more for me. Okay, Anna, then what's up next? Number four to come. Okay, I'm racing through these. Okay, so this one, a small white pot, it's actually Delft, it's tin glaze, as we were talking about before, but English made, so it rather than imported, and it's complete. I found it on a really low tide, an unexpected low tide, and when I saw it, I was so thrilled because it's very uncommon to find complete 
pottery like this. Apparently, only 70 or 80 years ago, they were commonly found. And there is a famous Thames mudlark, the Thames mudlark called uh, Ivor Noel Hume. And he thought there were so many because people threw them away. They were that common. But they're not anymore, so I was thrilled. So this is actually an apothecary pot. And it's the kind of pot that if you went to the apothecary and said, I need a medicine for the my sore arm, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they would have put their concoction into a little pot like this and sealed it with material and string and given it to you. Now, apothecaries are basically pharmacists. They live... They're not as sort of high status as doctors. Doctors have university educations and they're rather posh. And they're above the sort of, in the kind of ranking, they're above the traditional healers or the cunning men and women, as they were called, the people who did expel and also use traditional medicine. They sit between the two. They had a guild, so they were taken very seriously in that way. And they had at least seven years training and would take on an apprenticeship to have that training. And you'd go along and they would make up these concoctions. So it's a wonderful bit of England's medical history in the 17th century. But what I love about this, I was thinking, I wonder what they put in this. I mean, what kind of ingredients would they use? So I had a little Google. So there's the sort of standard herbs, minerals, your gemstone. But then they also liked quite exotic ingredients, like bear fat or sparrow brain or lion fat. But my favourite ingredient which again opens up a, an, opens up an idea of how people in this century viewed the world, is mamiya, which I'm sure you've heard of mamiya. Mamiya is what it sounds like. It is mummy. It is Egyptian mummy. So basically powdered Egyptian mummy. And you think, what? I know it sounds really naive, but I hadn't really thought about people in the 17th century even having a notion of ancient Egypt. Somehow I got stuck with the images of the Victorians and the Edwardians discovering these tombs. It hadn't really occurred to me that people had a much more cosmopolitan view of the world. So they were getting these, this mummia. And apparently mummia came to European attention during the Crusades. They heard of this amazing substance that came from Egyptian mummies. And the idea is that along the way, they confused the notion of a kind of bitumen that's used in the process of mummifying with the actual body itself. So, so the people who were talking about the amazing qualities of Mamiya were not talking about the same things as the Europeans uh, understood, which is actually crumbled body. Um, as a result of this hearing about the qualities of Mamiya, people started reading buying mummies from Egypt or raiding tombs. In fact, Egypt got incredibly annoyed about it in about the 1500s because they were just being raided the whole time so that apothecaries in England could have this magical ingredient. Now, what's interesting is about the time, in about the 1600s, Mamiya began to get a really bad rep because people knew it was running out. Something called false Mamiya came on the market. And false mamiya is rather unfortunately, if you have an executed body, of which there were many at this time, or even a desiccated rat, <laughs> or some other kind of dead body, you could pass that off in powdered form to your apothecary if you were selling to them. And then the, the unwitting apothecary would be passing it on to their, to their consumers. So around the 1600s, mamiya begins to go out of fashion, although it continues to be used into the 18th century. But that's just fascinating for so many ways how people 
how people relate and understand other cultures, this idea of a cosmopolitan understanding of the world, the idea of international trade, the idea of people raiding mummy, the idea of tricksters. I just It just completely altered the way I thought about uh, people's mentality in the 17th century. Okay, what else have you got for us? Oh, can I just say that the, I haven't got any particular story associated with this. There's things I want to research about it, but it's just such a wonderful find. I just, I picked up this. Can you see it? It is the weeniest little glass bottle from the middle of the 17th century. And I'm showing it to you because I picked it up only about a month ago, on a, again on a very low tide. It's absolutely perfect. I thought it was an apothecary vial. It might have been. It could have also been on a lady's dressing table for some kind of perfume. I just want to... I, apparently, there's not much research on it because I did ask a bottle person about it, research what these were precisely used for. But then... Oh, I have to really describe it. It's a very small, about an inch high, beautiful green bottle with a fat... I don't know how to say it. it, it it's a fat body and then goes up into briefly into a slender neck and then it's got a very flat top. And it really is perfect. And I found it sideways on the edge of a tide. And it was actually encased in, like, it had been concreted in over time. So it dropped in and then been concreted in. And the tide was coming in. And I couldn't get it out. And there's some parts of the northern shore that you're only allowed to search by eye. You're not allowed to use a trowel. You're not allowed to dig. Only a few people have a license to do that. And luckily, there was a gentleman there who does have that license. And I called him over. He's called Guy. So I shouted out, Guy! And people thought I was shouting out, Guy. So there was a bit of a trample over to see what I was doing. As I, <laughs> thought I was calling everyone over. And he very kindly used the end of his trowel to get it out. And we had the water lapping at our feet. And he eventually extracted it from me. And it was a really thrilling 17th century find. I don't know why it's in the water, but I'm very glad I got it out. It's not usual to find these. And it was a treat. So I say that not to tell you about the 17th century, but to tell you that there are delightful finds from the 17th century, and this particular one gave me great pleasure. It really is quite beautiful, isn't it? It's amazing. Oh, yeah. It really is very beautiful. Oh, gosh, I'm holding it up to the light now. Oh, I'm still very excited by it. I'm still getting a buzz. So I'm going to move on to a different sort of find now, if that's okay. So actually, this is an 18th century find, but it relates to the 17th century. So I picked this little button up a few years ago. I only discovered yesterday it was silver. It was tarnished. And I, thought it was some, I don't know what that is. It never occurred to me it was actually silver, but I rubbed it with a bit of tin foil. And if it's silver, it gives off a very strong whiff of sulfur. And that is exactly what happened. So it's a silver button. And it says on it, Phoenix, I think it's Phoenix Fire Office or, yeah, Phoenix Fire Service. So this is, and it's got, as an image, a phoenix rising from the ashes so this is a button that would have been on the uniform of one of the private fire insurance companies that operated in london from the 17th century right up until victorian times now the reason that's relevant is because these companies formed as a direct result of the great fire of london so london was three quarters burned to the ground and some canny businessmen thought oh, there's an opportunity to make money here apparently the idea had been knocking around for a couple of decades before they thought why don't we start a fire insurance company so the first one was started by a gentleman i've actually had to write down his name because it's so brilliant he was born with the name let me just see if i can find it here oh here we go 
He was born with a name. Hath Christ not died for thee, thou wouldn't be damned. Barebone. Barebone being his last name. But he later changed his name to Nicholas Barbon for obvious reasons. What brilliant name is that? He had a very fiery father, apparently, who was uh, in the Parliament. And he started the first fire insurance company in 1680, which was called the Fire Office. Now, I actually thought that this Phoenix Fire Badge related to that originally because he, it became the Phoenix Company and he had this emblem. Um, and that seems to be the general view. But I got down a rabbit hole of fire insurance documents and ended up reading that, in fact, his company had collapsed and this company had started about 80 years later in Georgian times. But there were a whole load of fire insurance companies that started. There was like the Sun Fire Insurance Company. I think there's a Friends. Is it the Friends office, the Fire Office, Sun Fire Alliance, hand in hand? They had little tin signs that they put on their wall to show that the buildings were covered by that particular fire insurance company. And they didn't just pay out money. They actually had little private firefighters. So, and each insurance company had their group of firefighters who would wear a little uniform. Their uniforms were distinct, beautifully buttoned, which is why this I have such a beautiful button here, marked out in red and with lovely piping. And what's interesting is that they were actually recruited largely from Thames Waterman, right, which I hadn't known till recently. And that's partly because Thames Waterman could zip up and down the river and it was the most effective way of getting around if there was a fire rather than trying to move around London's busy streets. And the great advantage for the Thames Waterman was because of an act of parliament at the end of the 17th century. If you signed up to be a firefighter in this one, one of these insurance companies, you were exempt from being press ganged into joining the Navy. So that was a, a real incentive to join. Anyway, the, these fire insurance companies continued throughout the 18th century. There's a myth that if someone from the Sun Alliance Company saw somebody from the Hand and Hand Company, or saw a property from the Hand and Hand Company burning, they wouldn't put that fire out. But actually... That wasn't the case because obviously if the hand-in-hand company had a building burning and it was next to a sun one, everyone's going to be affected. So they were very quickly cooperating, working out deals between each other. And eventually that cooperation ended up with a big metropolitan fire uh, company being started in Victorian times in London. But the origins of that were from the Great Fire of London. And this badge is one of the steps along the way that show how we ended up with a fire service. And if our listeners are anywhere near Magnus the Martyr Church at any point, then have a little look in because there is a strange contraption, which is one of the earliest fire engines that we have in London. And I'll put a link to a blog post that we have as well. There's one other fire-related object I found. I just, it's not, it doesn't look very interesting, but this, when I found, I don't know what's wrong with me sometimes, I picked this up and I thought, oh, it's a bit of leather with a lot of studs in. And my mind, for example, my mind, I don't know why my mind did this. It went immediately to some sort of nefarious use. I thought it was some sort of sex toy, a sort of awful strap. Of course, it's not. It's used to secure a leather bucket that you would uh, you put water in fire with. And there's an example in the fire. There used to be an example in the Museum of London. Um, so they did have, that, that was a kind of tool they'd use, a fire bucket like this. They had quite basic tools. They used basically have poles to bring down buildings to stop them burning. But yes, that fire engine, that fire engine is in that wonderful church, along with that amazing model of the of, of London Bridge, which is just like you can stand there dreaming for ages as you watch all these little tiny figures on the old London Bridge living their life. 
living their good life. All right. So we have had uh, the witch bottle. We've had the delve tile, the a beautiful coin, the complete pottery um, and a silver button. Have you got anything else for us? I have another coin, but it's very special. Actually, the Commonwealth coin was quite special, but these are really magic because they connect you not with a king or with a period of history, but with an actual person. So I'm holding it up so you can see, Hazel. It's a a little round disc like any coin. It's actually very thin. It's Mm. copper alloy. It looks like it's gold, but that's deceiving. That's called Thames gilding, because when certain materials go in the Thames, they get this, they come out with this wonderful golden colour that can really trick you the first few times you see it. You get very excited and think you found gold. But it's still, nonetheless, absolutely magical find. Beautiful. It is beautiful. On one side of this coin, there at the centre, there's it has P-H-E written in a triangle, the letters, and around it it says, At ye wit whores tavern. And on the reverse, there's an image in the centre of a running horse. And around it, it says, in Friday Street, with an E on the end. Now, this is a trader's token. Now, basically, for years, people struggled with the fact that there was no small change because our coins were silver and gold. And if you want to get an egg and you've only got a silver coin, you're going to be a bit stuffed if you want to get change. So people found all sorts of ways to get around that. They'd cut the coin into half or into quarters. You can't cut it into an eighth to get your egg. You're going to lose it. These coins are tiny. So for centuries, people have been using these lead tokens. So if you were a business, you might have these crude lead tokens, maybe with a little cross on it or a picture of a very roughly cast picture of a wine glass and someone would come in to buy their ale with their coin and you might give them a load of tokens back and because they lived locally they could keep using those tokens when they came in on the understanding that at some point they could actually if they wanted to trade all the tokens in and get their coin back so that was how it worked for ages it was a sort of unofficial economy that was necessary because the royal mint wasn't giving people any other options now after charles the first was executed parliament said do you know what folks you can mint your own traders' tokens. They can't be made out of silver or gold. They have to be made out of a base metal. But you can knock yourself out, go and make yourself really high-quality tokens. And people did. They did it from 1649 right up to about 1673. So there's a quite a short period, a flourishing of about 4,000 coins. And these mm. coins were issued by individuals and individual businesses. So, for example, I've described this coin to you, and I can tell you that uh, P.E. is actually Henry Petty, or Pettit, and his wife, Elizabeth. And they lived on Friday Street in the late 1650s, early 1660s. He was a wine merchant, a vintner, operating out of White Horse Tavern. I don't know if he owned the White Horse Tavern or he operated out of it. I'm not sure, but... Certainly, he was involved in wine and worked there. By 1663, he had at least two children. He was a local boy. He was born in the same parish, the parish of St. Margaret Moses in the city. Uh, The church was at the end of the street. Unfortunately for him, the church, the street, everything was burned down in the Great Fire because he lived just a stone's throw from Pudding Lane where the Great Fire started. So you get quite a lot of these on the foreshore. And I expect a lot of them fell out of people's pockets as they were running for... 
towards the foreshore to try and get boats across the river during the Great Fire. People headed out of the city on horses and carts with their belongings. Other people crushed down towards the river and items fell out of their pocket. And you find quite a lot of these. I imagine that they also lost their value after 1673 because they were no longer, you, you were no longer allowed to use this. But the, uh, the government of the time instead started issuing copper coins and tried to solve the problem of uh, lack of change themselves. Anyway, it's remarkable that on this coin I've pulled Henry and his wife out of obscurity. So I've literally dragged them back into living memory. Like raising Lazarus is extraordinary. And I think that's why people love these traders' tokens. I've got a few of them. I've got another one. I've got a John Fielder who was married to Anna. He had six kids. He lived in Kingston Pond Thames. I'm not sure what he did for a job because the symbol on the coin is a bit confusing. It looks like maybe it was something to do with wheat. I'm not sure. But his father was a candle maker. And he was a Quaker, and he I found oh. out because of that he was fined for his beliefs. He refused to take an oath of allegiance, so he was fined. Mm-hmm. And then the Quakers record what happens to their membership in the sufferings of the Quakers. So I also know that he was imprisoned in 1667 for refusing to swear an oath. So I know that oh. about this otherwise, for all I know, unremarkable man, an ordinary person, has been revived just by finding these coins and of course they historically they're really interesting as well because you suddenly have really detailed information about 4,000 businesses and a lot of the coins relate to London and particularly the city of London and one of the things I find really interesting is that women in general tend to be invisible men it's as if the world is populated only by men because they are the only ones who appear in the record doing anything. But actually, women were working too. And huge yep. numbers of women in the 17th century weren't married and had to make their own way anyway. And about 3%, which is about 140 of these coins, relate to women. They are women-owned businesses. In fact, some of the coins say on them, his half penny, but you get the odd few that say her half penny, which is wonderful. And these women were tavern owners, for example or tailors, and you can suddenly, they come out of the shadows, these women, and you realise that they were there, they were doing things, that they were probably working alongside their husbands in the apothecaries. They knew just as much as their husband did, but they weren't being given official status, and so they weren't being entered into records. So Mm -hmm. I think information like that you can glean from this coin is just really important not just for making sure that women are acknowledged in history but just because it gives you a fuller picture of individuals and what life was in my mental image of that period suddenly I pop back in all these women I put back in the women running the pubs and the women next to Mm -hmm. the apothecaries they are there when formerly they're invisible so these are these are like they're like magic beans, these trade tokens. <laughs> and as I said, they were stopped in 1673. People weren't allowed to use them anymore. And that's when the government said, OK, we're, we're going to mint copper coins. We're going to stop doing just silver and gold. We're going to mint mm-hmm. value coins and stamp the king's head on it. And so tokens eventually kind of fall out of favour. But it's just really yeah. intriguing. It's it's intriguing on a number of levels, because also we're talking about a local currency, and you can use them to create basically a directory of businesses 
where you wouldn't have had the yellow pages. So this is helping us put together. Last year, I read an interesting book actually about tokens during the time of Samuel Pepys. It was written by George Berry. Um, as in Lackberry, uh, Taverns and Tokens of Pepys's London. Um, and I thought that was very interesting. And he explains how they were used. I don't know if you know anything about the White Hart on Friday Street. Should I tell you a little bit oh about it? Oh my gosh, it? do you know about the White Hart? <laughs> yes. Oh, I really love your pubs, pubs, but also called the streets in London. It's called Friday Street because that's where you would go on Friday to buy your fish. Because oh. you weren't allowed to eat meat. So this is a very smelly, fishy street. We've also got Fish Street Hill as well. But the White Horse on Friday Street, destroyed during the Great Fire, it was rebuilt and it was added on, etc., all the way to, and it actually eventually closed until about 1931 when it was then later demolished. How amazing. I've got another one, actually, from the... Oh, I haven't got the... I can't... I haven't got my glasses, so I can't read the location. I'm going to send it to you afterwards. But it's a cock-a-hoop, a cock-and-a-hoop, and it's uh-huh. a tavern. But it's not the one on Fleet Street. It seems to be adjacent to it. And I just can't find any details of it. So I'm going to send you what I do yeah. have. And maybe in your magical mind, you'll be able to give me more information because I was very thrilled by this trader's token as well. No, it's fantastic, isn't it? Because it just gives you a little bit of a um, insight into how businesses were having to do everything themselves, having to produce their own Disney money. Yeah. If we think about individual business owners like myself now, and you think you've got to be your own your accountant and your own marketer and your own admin and this, that and the other, but at least I don't have to print my own money. Printing your own money would be pretty fun, actually. I think they've done a really good job. These trade tokens are really attractive. I love the little horse running yeah. and these little sheaves. And I don't know. I think I'd feel really chuffed if I had my own coin. I know exactly what I'd uh, how I'd look if I put myself on a coin. Hold on a second, just for a number. <laughs> how about that? You look very regal. It's got a very Tudor air to it. Fantastic. That's what I thought as well. So, uh, listeners, I, bought, I treated myself at Christmas and I bought myself a little headband that looks like a French hood during Anne Boleyn's time. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Pearls and all. Very <laughs> impressive. Oh, I actually, yes. I think I've, I think I don't want to go on and on. I think that those are, I hope those finds give you some idea of why I find 16th century objects on the foreshore so exciting and what a revelation they are when it comes to understanding the period. And I have other finds. They're all, I have these little aglets, for example, which are lace shapes. In the 17th century, everybody loved having these. Mm-hmm. They used them to seal the, whenever they had like dangling bits of lace or ties, they put these on the end to help them thread. And you find these all the times amidst the pins. And I've got a seal matrix with a dove and a, a holding a olive branch in his beak that i always imagined that this was dropped by someone escaping the great fire of london it seems the kind of thing that you'd slip into your pocket and you know yeah would fall out quite easily and buckles that would have been on knee breeches maybe they also as people climbed into boats and then of course the ubiquitous rose farthing which are these tiny little copper coins with a brass insert stop counterfeiting that a lot of us think were maybe used for wary fares because they're so very common they were private issued mm-hmm. before the tokens, actually, but they were commonly used. But I have quite a lot of oh. finds, but the ones I've talked about, I think, are the ones that are most exciting. Oh, there's one last thing I can show you, actually, if you don't mind. 
No, of course not. Actually, it's actually visual, which is annoying. But when we talked last time, we were talking about clay pipes and how mm -hmm. that came to England in the 1580s. And this is a period, the 1600s is when tobacco is spreading. And clay pipes yes. are becoming more and more popular. People are smoking the whole time. I was thinking what a good story it would have been for me if the Great Fire started with a dropped clay pipe <laughs> rather than in a bakery. It would have been such a good narrative when you're talking about clay pipes, but that isn't what happened. Um, but this, I have with me a little tiny clay pipe that I just picked up the other day. Now, it's so tiny, that would have been made around a 1610, I think. I don't know how big that is. It's about a third of the size of the bigger ones in the Georgian mm -hmm. period. And this is because, mm -hmm. as we talked about before, tobacco is really expensive at this time. What I hadn't realised is I thought that the price of tobacco came down only because of the slaves. But actually, before the slaves in the 1600s, there were a lot of indentured servants. So there were a lot of people going out from England voluntarily with this weird contract where they basically worked out servitude for a certain number of years and they were given passage and then they were um, mm -hmm. came free and those were the people that were providing the tobacco before the slaves were introduced but anyway mm -hmm. that with me that little tiny clay pipe which is evidence of just as people were beginning to smoke on the streets of london they had little weeny clay pipes this is when tobacco was still a novelty and you do find very many 17th century clay pipes on the foreshore just the other day there was a very low tide and i think i picked up just in an hour, about 15, 17th century clay pipes. So wow. So they really were everywhere. People were smoking them. So when you think about them in the 17th century, you also have to think about them smoking. Yes, yeah. We forget that, don't we? Yeah, so if anybody wants to listen to the earlier episode that Anna kindly did, it is episode number 112, and I will put a link to that in the show notes as well, and you will learn plenty more about clay pipes, uh, but also you'll get to know why Anna has so many pins in her house. You because I'm a little bit obsessive? <laughs> 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 that's why I have so many, as opposed to why they're on the foreshore. Yeah. I was no, that's a been little that's bit guilty. I think, who am I? Who have I become? Why am I a middle-aged woman picking pins out of mud? But there we go. <laughs> Often you get that sort of existential I, doubt on the foreshore. What am I doing here? Why am I here? And yet I come back because I love it. I think all mudlocks come back because they love it. And I think it's absolutely fascinating how all those things that you've just highlighted today, the artefacts themselves, but also then the connection to the stories of the people that would have used them and would have been their everyday kind of thing. It highlights to us how life would have been so similar and also how different as well with certain aspects as well and how much even over the centuries, humans really, we haven't changed that much. That is absolutely true. Very true indeed. I'm so glad that through mudlocking I've been able to regain a sense of people's humanity in the past because before I mudlocked, I, the past just seemed rigid and black and white, not filled with real people, not people with hearts or feelings, mm -hmm. just stiff figures moving around a page. And these everyday items just as have repeopled my imagination and repeopled the past for me and actually i think as more people learn about mudlocking and hear these sort of stories i think it has i think it captures people's imag imagination for that very reason i think it's helped lots of people understand gosh these people were pinned together they were smoking pipes they were drinking out of these jugs 
helps with your imagination and makes you really look closely actually at historical paintings now, which I never used to do. But when I go to galleries now, I'm always peering in and thinking, oh, there's a pipe and there's an aglet and look over there, she's got a coral bead like I've got at home. So yeah, yeah that's really gratifying too. Makes it all very much more real, doesn't it? It does. Brilliant. Anna, thank you so much. That has been amazing. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to relearn about my own objects. And if anybody wants to follow Anna on Twitter, for example, then I'll put all the details in the show notes as well. So you can follow and you can learn as Anna does as well while she's with Larking. That's all for now. Don't forget you can hear Anna's previous episode about mudlarking finds from George and London, episode 112. Until next time.